that car was a unique one too from that perspective because we never put it on the dyno that's another one that really yeah never never touched a dyno before it went to the mountain so there was no testing whatsoever <laughs> it drove through tech and then they went from tech to a local track and the guy would make a lap and i would log in remotely because I, I couldn't go there that year <laughs> On this episode of Tuned In, we've got Sander Marquez joining us from Obsidian Motorsport Group in the US. And we've known Sander for a fair while and he's probably one of the smartest people that I've met in the motorsport industry. He's got a fairly wide-ranging skill set and he's been instrumental in some pretty cool projects. In particular today we talk about his calibration and configuration work on the Motec suite of electronics on the BBI Autosport Porsche GT3 twin turbo, bit of a mouthful there, uh, that competed at Pikes Peak originally in 2019 and won the class as well as setting a new record and also competed again uh, just recently in 2021, uh, again winning its class and coming fifth outright. An interesting aspect of that build is that the whole thing was done in only a month and Sander actually completely tuned that car which at the time was making around 850 horsepower once they actually got it on a dyno. He completed the full calibration of that car remotely and it never went on a dyno so we quite often get asked about uh, the process of road tuning, whether that is viable, whether we can actually get good results and uh, a class win and a, la a, a lap record, uh, a record up Pikes Peak, it goes to show that yes, absolutely, 100% it can be done. Uh, there's a little bit that goes into that though, of course, so we'll get into that as we go through the interview. Uh, before we get into that and just touching on uh, that aspect of road tuning as well, if you are interested in learning how to road tune, uh, there are some limitations of course around that, uh, but if you are interested in learning, we do include segments on road tuning in both of our practical tuning courses. That includes our practical standalone tuning course which is perfect for anyone who wants to learn how to tune an aftermarket standalone ECU, irrespective of what brand of ECU that is or what engine you want to tune. And we we also cover road tuning as well in our practical reflash tuning course which is perfect for those of you of course who want to learn how to reflash a factory fitted ECU. It's a process that's becoming much more commonplace particularly with late model cars as they get more complex. So we'll go through the process in that course of the tuning on a dyno, of course we have our own dyno and that's how a lot of people will be doing their tuning but uh, we do have customers that come from cities and even sometimes countries around the world where there are simply no local dynos and in that situation you've got no choice. As I mentioned, yes there are some limitations specifically around really optimising and fine tuning the ignition timing, it's of course uh, impossible to know exactly where MBT is for our ignition timing if we don't have the benefit of a feedback on engine torque or uh, maybe if the budget allows in cylinder pressure monitoring but we can still do a really good job of getting the tune dialed in and a lot of our customers will use the road tuning additions to our courses in order to get their tune dialed in close uh, where their only cost is maybe a tank of fuel and some time after hours after their job or in the weekend and then once they've got that tune dialed in and everything's really close uh, they can then finish it off and optimise everything 
everything with just maybe one or two hours of dyno time. So it's a very viable option for your tuning. Uh, as a listener to this podcast as well, you can use the coupon code PODCAST75 and that's going to give you $75 off the purchase of your first HPA course. Uh, we'll put a link into the description for both of those practical tuning courses if you are interested in learning about tuning as well as the road tuning aspect of it. Okay, with our introduction out of the way, let's jump into our interview with Sander now. Welcome along to the podcast there, Sander, thanks for joining us today and uh, I think it, it, without trying to make your head expand here, over the years I've been involved with HPA, uh, I've had the pleasure of meeting and interviewing some really smart people and uh, I think you're right up near the top of that list. Some of the stuff we've talked about uh, over uh, PRI and SEMA adventures has been pretty pretty mind-blowing uh, and, and I'm really looking forward to, to diving in a bit deeper on some of this stuff as we go through about the next hour. I, I think for, for those who maybe haven't heard your name before though, could you just start by maybe giving us a, a, a quick rundown on, on your background, how you got into tuning and electronics yeah sure um uh thanks for having me here um yeah so my name is sander i uh i've been doing things in the automotive world for uh quite a number of years um right now i'm doing most mostly things based around motec m1 uh, motec m1 build specifically and uh inertial sensing um, maybe we'll talk about that later i'm sure uh and my background is i started as a as a 15 year old working as a, a basically a shop bitch uh doing doing chores and work around an automotive shop and i just i couldn't have been happier i thought it was like the greatest job ever um and i learned tons of lessons about life among many things but also about how to diagnose problems and just general problem solving mentality uh so i worked there till i was uh for a number of years and then I started working in the uh, performance tuning world and right around 2006, 2005, maybe. And I was tuning uh, Hondata uh, back when it was a staged system. So you would have a Hondata stage four, just long before S100, 200, or 300. Um, and I didn't really know what I was doing. You know, I just, I, I had a car at myself, uh, my, my own like, personal car, and I was messing with it, and um, friends needed help with it. And, that sort of progressed on from there. So how did you how did you make that transition from shop bitch to uh, learning how to tune this Honda platform? Did you already have a background in sort of EFI or was it was it sort of straight in the deep end? No, I the thing that I was so fortunate about with uh, this working at this shop uh, was that the guys the two guys that owned it were just delightful humans and they they really took a lot of time with me to sort of teach me the basics. So if I, if I had a problem with a car, they would say, you know, like, Hey, go diagnose this, whatever, you know, AC doesn't work. And I would come back and say, well, I think it's this relay that's bad. Let me just replace the relay. And then they'd be like, okay, that's fine. Well, you need to show me why the relay is bad. And this sort of thinking uh, progressed along and that eventually I just was, uh, just totally um, uh, obsessed with powertrain uh, engine controls and engines in general. And then those guys helped me with the basics there. So by the time I got into messing with Honda, like I had mentioned, I felt like I had a pretty good 
foundation of like how to diagnose problems to do that you need to know the fundamentals and they certainly helped me with that i think that's a really important aspect that is so easy to overlook for those who wanting to get into the performance automotive industry particularly as tuners and we see a lot of people who come into this who've got no formal background in automotive mechanics and you definitely don't need to be a mechanic to tune an engine but uh, you know, what I, I still remember vividly, you know, the, the, the shop I used to run, uh, probably four in every five cars that we put on the dyno would not just go on the dyno, get tuned and then roll out the door. Uh, there would inevitably be some level of problem and at some point it, it can be really, if you don't have that mechanical experience, it can be really tempting to just sit there in the comfort of the driver's seat, punching buttons on a laptop keyboard and going nowhere but uh, at some point you, you've got to actually diagnose the, the root cause so that that background understanding of the mechanical system how the engine works how the fuel system works that's so key to being able to kind of go down a, a sensible path and a sensible approach to actually efficiently fault finding and, and fixing those issues and that that skill I do sadly believe is being lost a bit these days yeah and it, it's it's just an uh the sort of current state of um, all the things you need to know to be a mechanic today is just it's orders of magnitude more than it would have been even 20 years ago, 10 years ago, um, just with the sort of complexity. So I think the basics get lost in this the sort of training of that. And that's, that's sad um, in my mind, but agreed. Anyway. Yeah. So I, I, uh, I started with that. I always liked computers. I was like a big nerd through most of the, well, I guess I'm still a big nerd, but I was definitely a big nerd in high school uh, and and uh, middle school and high school. And I, I just like like computers and I like cars and this sort of these things merged together when I started messing with Honda. Sure. And um, uh, it continued on from there. Uh, and I, I just sort of, you know, whatever it would be almost 20 years later now, I'm I'm here surrounded by robots and computers and cars. <laughs> so it's, it's it's a good place to be. So what was the jump from Hondata to uh, your own business and and also the move towards Motec? I mean, th those are poles apart. So can you sort of fill in the blanks there for us quickly? Yes, yeah, so quickly is hard, but I'll do my okay. best. Um, yeah, so going from uh, when I started messing with my own car, uh, I, you know, had a, I had mentioned that I had lots of friends that had Honda out of stuff. This was like street racing was really big, especially near where I am in, in Baltimore. And they were, it was just, you were the guy to know if you knew like how EFI worked and you knew how Honda worked. And I had tuned lots of cars and I realized I could charge money for it and still keep a normal job because I was doing this at night. Yeah. So then I, I started the frequency of tunes that I was doing was going up, but the quality was I wouldn't say going down, but it was just stagnating. Like it just, uh, it was just so much. And I, uh, I wanted to differentiate and get out of that. So in 2008, I took, uh, a class. Oh, this may be bad. This is from one of your competitors. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, there was an in-person class, um, by a, another, uh, another school that was doing tuning at the time. And the class was actually uh, it was a Motec V3 class that right. was designed by Shane and Paul Yaw, I think, actually. Maybe Shane did yep. most of it. I don't know. But the 
the the thing that just really it 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 lit this like insatiable sort of desire within me to learn everything about Motec was the M800 because yep. the the axis on axis um the sort of the, the the possibilities of this like are are exponential right when when they made that change to their version 3 firmware it was really a game changer and i mean even to this to this day i know a lot of people who are still using the m800 over the m1 because arguably or even not arguably outside of build the the flexibility to you 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 could do almost anything you could come up with with a bit of thought and how you're going to manipulate the the different axes for these tables which unfortunately at least in the production firmware for m1 a little bit of that i think has been lost oh, i would say more than a little bit i mean it's it's uh you're you're very with with gp packages they're they're great motex done a phenomenal job of like getting it roughly there but uh, the creativity spark is certainly gone in the production package. They want you to do that and build, which we sure. should talk about later. But um, yeah, so anyway, I, I had taken that class and I, I just, I think it was two days and I I, I uh, was in California. I don't remember, Southern California. And I remember leaving there and just being like, I want nothing more in my life than to be able to sell and represent Motec products. <laughs> so <laughs> I was just so, so like, so drinking the Kool-Aid at that point. <laughs> And, um, you know, I couldn't, I, at the time, like I, I didn't have the clientele that could, that could kind of fork the money over for, uh, you know, an unlocked M800 with all options and stuff. And so it was, it was a hard was sell. A price point. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, and uh, it, I, I sort of didn't let that deter me i was like trying to save up money to buy an m800 so i could just have one on my desk and poke at it because i i just thought that that was super cool to uh to do that and eventually i i found one local porsche guy that was willing to well sorry let me back up i i i attended a number of dealer training seminars that you which was a requirement maybe still is at motec usa to be able to become a dealer, you need to go through this whole week of training, which is ECU dash PDM, I2, yeah. um, uh, maybe even, I think build was a requirement at the time. But And the, the last thing you needed was to be able to sell one unit before you could be a dealer at retail. And I found, I found a friend that was willing to buy an M84 for his Porsche because it was the cheapest one that, <laughs> that I could yeah. sell and get and become a dealer. So I was... I was like very uh, thankful for him to be able to write the check to like basically allow me to become a dealer. And uh, the guys at Motec USA, specifically Dave Gibson, were just awesome to deal with. I think um, that that training. I just want to talk talk to that for a, a moment there because I, I think that that is really important. And I mean, obviously, the Motec product is at a higher price point, so there's some abilities around there that that probably don't come at the more sort of entry level ECU range but a problem I constantly see because uh, I used to end up retuning a lot of cars that that had been set up poorly is the ECU manufacturers often look at the the bottom line first and think well the more dealers we've got out there the more units we're going to sell so happy days 
and of course the problem is that we get a lot of, of tuners out there who unfortunately don't really understand the basics of tuning, do a horrible job, don't understand the product, don't set it up properly. At the end of the day, it's the customer that's going to have to live with that. And particularly uh, to the customer, if the car starts horribly when it's cold, doesn't idle properly, has poor drivability, uh, quite often the, the end result is, of that is they end up blaming the ECU and the ECU manufacturer gets a bad rap. So I, I think it, it, it's it's good that MoTeC actually go above and beyond with that training strategy. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure there's still... Uh, MoTeC dealers out there who maybe aren't working at the highest level but it kind of at least brings in this sort of uh, minimum viable level that they need to be at to do a, a good job with the product. Yeah, I totally, 100% agree. And I, I really can't speak enough to the the time that I had gotten involved with MoTeC um, as a dealer, I think was early 2010, maybe 2011. Um, Maybe 2012. I can't remember. It's all kind of blurring together. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I, the week of training, you know, it was expensive and becoming a dealer cost, cost a lot of time and money. Um, but I did, I repeated the same week the following year uh, because I, I continued to get more out of it. Even hearing the same material, like if you think of a question during the first year, you take it and you're like, oh, I wonder why that is that way. And then you go back again. Like I, I just can't speak enough to the importance of understanding the low-level um, sort of functionality and how things are working and why things are doing what they're doing. Yeah, it's, it's just absolutely incomprehensibly important. Um, and <clears throat> uh, that that kind of at that point when I had become a dealer, I I used these um, my first sort of electronic product that I ever ever made uh, and wanted to sell um, was using gym stim uh, megasport simulators and I had built wiring harnesses to adapt them to different popular ECUs so I right. and my only goal with those was to, was to save enough money like to make enough money to buy a sim 3 <laughs> so <laughs> it was it was sort of a, a, a motex simulator I should say specifically yeah. sim 3 um, so it was and a means to it was a yeah, yeah, and it never worked out. Like I just was so so in the red on on that whole project, but it just <laughs> took so much time. And I think I it was like my first lesson in in sort of uh, trying to do market research through social media because I would I, I didn't have a following, and I certainly don't really at this point even. But um, I, I had asked people like, "Hey, would you buy a simulator if it was five hundred dollars?" You know, so you could run a ECU on the desk and check can stuff or just make sure stage injection is working like you think it does or flex fuel or whatever. And everybody was like, yeah, yeah, I'll totally buy that. That's a really great idea. And then as soon as I made like a bunch of them and I had to hand assemble these, you know, like I, I buy these gym stim kits from Magasquirt and I would set them up such that they would work with um, normal type uh, ignition drivers, not like a, 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 like a dumb coil as it were. Yep. And, uh, you know, made it so you could plug it into the thing and like flip a switch on and you could get a crank signal and it was really easy. And I was like kind of proud of it. And it just, man, I still have them sitting back there and like, <laughs> I'll get like, I'll get a note every once in a while from somebody that's like, yeah, are you still selling these? And I'm like, no, go away. Don't <laughs> go away. I don't ever want to sell these again. <laughs> um, 
Uh, some, anyway, sometimes yeah. you've got to go through a failed project and, and realize maybe what the market wants. Maybe those people who are sort of said initially $500, yep, I'll take one. And then, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, when you actually put it in front of them, they're like, oh, no, not now. No, I don't, I don't have Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I'll let you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'll be back yeah. to you next so, year. So let's um, talk about the, the transition from um, the, the 100 series ECUs from MoTeC to, to M1, which is definitely not a new platform now. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty grown up and established. Um, what, what's your sort of uh, take on that? What did that offer over the, the M800 for you? And, and do you see that was a step up? We'll get into M1 build in a moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for sure, even just stepping aside from build or all the flexibility that that provides you, it's for sure a step up just from the simple fact that like if you if you enter all the base parameters right on a car with M1 that's wired properly, like in a perfect world, you can put one number in the VE table and it'll pretty much run okay. Like mm-hmm. uh, if you put 80, 85 or 100 in the VE table, it should start up and run and idle. Um, may not be perfect, but it'll, it'll get you close. Doing that in M800 is, is, is not, it, it takes more Motex specific knowledge um, with Crips and sort of setting up the trigger patterns correctly. Whereas M1, you have the, the sort of uh, endless number of drop-down menus for pre-configured stuff to make that more easy. So you're basically choosing a, a trigger pattern specific to the engine you're working on and kind of the hard work mm-hmm. of it, at least you, you've mentioned CRIP, which for non-MOTEC users probably they won't understand, yeah. but basically uh, that's in the older MOTEC ECUs, how we align the, the timing or set the base timing so that the trigger event, the spark event, I should say, was actually occurring uh, at the right point. What the, what the laptop said is what you'd see on the timing light, whereas at least with a lot of the fixed trigger uh, patterns on on these engines now as you say that's just done from a drop down menu and and we're basically good to go yeah more or less i mean there's still a timing offset number that's sort of similar of to crip and m1 as you know but uh they'll, they'll usually give you like a guideline like hey, it should be 40 degrees or, or whatever um, but the point being less about less about ignition timing settings or, or excuse me uh, offset settings is just that it's m1 is much easier than m800 and using a ve mm. model as a opposed to a pulse width model like you sort of get a lot of free stuff with that you know let's sense. actually talk about that because we do quite often get asked you know ve models now uh, are pretty common on most mainstream aftermarket ecus everyone's sort of switched to that i don't know i think a lot of people at the time that was starting to come around thought that that was just sort of a, a marketing ploy or a, a, a new buzzword <laughs> uh but but it, but it's not. So give us your take on on injection pulse width or injection time based uh, fuel models versus volumetric efficiency fuel models. Where are the advantages? And maybe even at, actually at a, at a higher level, could you could you sort of break down what a VE model actually is? Yeah, sure. So I mean, um, to start, uh, a volumetric efficiency model efficiency model is trying to model air passing through a motor, where pulse width is just really just uh, a number that you apply to an injector. So it's like a lookup table only. Uh, there are uh, there are still examples of ECUs that are current today that use pulse width lookup tables. Yep. Um, Life and Cyvex specifically are, are ones that still do. Uh, yep, absolutely. But the volumetric efficiency type ECUs, what falls out of that is this stuff that's relevant for 
modern sort of highly electronic sports cars, which is torque. Um, so it's, you know, sort of uh, trying to estimate engine parameters is, is a much simpler thing than trying to use, do all the math from injector pulse width. Uh, there's certainly, you could, you could obviously do all of the same stuff that a VE ECU does with a pulse width ECU. It's just the VE ECU is doing more work for you. It's doing more of the sure. math for you. Um, I don't, uh, I, I, I go a lot of back and forth on this. Um, from a high level, I think VE ECUs are nice because it makes roughing a map in uh, to get a car running in the ballpark much easier in my mind if you have correct injection yeah, data. Yeah, like, like you said, uh, you, you know, if you've got the correct injector data, you, you could literally put a number of 60 or 80% across the whole VE table. It won't be right, but it's going to let the engine get up and running. Whereas if you're looking at a, a, an injection time-based ECU or two milliseconds on a 500cc injector versus two milliseconds pulse width on right. a thousand cc injector obviously we're, we're completely you know quantum leaps different in the amount of fuel being delivered so uh, understanding the injector size versus the the injection pulse width that's being delivered or in some issues they go a step further it's not directly a millisecond number in the fuel table we're actually looking at a, a percentage of a, a master injector pulse width which adds another right. layer of complexity and understanding that and then also comes down to the relationship between your master injector pulse width that's going to affect the resolution you end up with in the table as well, which I see a lot of tuners get wrong. So, you know, they might end up with a fuel table that the maximum value is sitting at 40%, which, you know, doesn't give us a lot of resolution. Each change we make in in, in that table has a coarser effect on the air fuel ratio. Yeah, to totally, totally agree in, in all, in all uh, aspects there. Um, another easy advantage is that you can, look at a dyno chart and assume where peak torque is and sort of make that call that 120 and just that'll probably be fine to taper off from there if the, that's what the torque curve does um the the one thing that I, I find sad and a little disheartening about the e stuff is that uh, it gets back to this the sort of original topic that we had was just the basics um you don't have to have a grasp for that like if you choose the correct inject injector data and you choose the right displacement of the motor and you've got cylinder count right and all, all the fuel properties and stuff done correctly, you don't really need to know why. Um, with an injector pulse with ECU, you, you also don't need to know why, but uh, it, it sort of exposes... Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's because I have old Excel spreadsheets that I could create, you know, like VE models from inject, like a big injector pulse width chart. Yeah. But uh, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm sort of fall under that like old curmudgeon um, uh, yeah, tuner guy when it comes to that. Like, I, 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 I think it. it's important to know, you know, know how, why, how and why it's working. So that's hard. I got, I've got lots of feelings about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so let, let's just go back to another aspect you mentioned there. There's two parts here. Uh, you, you said if you've got a, a torque curve up on a, a dyno screen, you can sort of look at peak torque and where that's occurring and call that 120% VE and then taper off. And I mean, again, not going to be perfect, but yeah. probably there or thereabouts at least. Uh, and I think the thing that, that a lot of people 
maybe misses when we're looking at a torque curve really that that on the dyno that's representing the airflow through the engine so essentially that torque curve is going to have a, a very similar shape to our ve curve in our table correct yeah yeah and then the the what's also true is uh injector duty cycles should represent horsepower right yes yeah so like th these are good rational checks to see if you for if you're some idiot that doesn't have a fuel pressure sensor and you your ve table is just like going to the moon you know you can yeah. probably logically deduce that you have a fuel problem <laughs> you have a supply problem um I, I'm pleased you brought that up. We actually uh, discuss that exact aspect in our FI Tuning Fundamentals course because this is one, the, probably one of the more common issues I would see when tuning on a maybe an older car where there was some fuel system problem and maybe you didn't have full monitoring of things like fuel pressure. And you do a dyno run and maybe you know, towards seven, seven and a half thousand RPM, maybe we're starting to run a little bit lean. Well, okay, obviously we'll just go and sure. uh, add, a, add a little bit more to the fuel table there and you do another run and lo and behold, it's no different. Uh, and you know, three, four runs later and you, you, you've got this exponential shape to your fuel curve and yet you're still lean. And that should straight away be a sign, you know, once you're starting to deviate away from the shape of the torque curve, you've got, got it ramping up at higher RPM. Well, that's not normal. So this is a red flag, alarm bell, something else is wrong. Figure out what that issue is. Yeah, a sign that it's good to go and you've done your job. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's sarcastic. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I get it, I get it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you mentioned that one of the advantages with the VE uh, fuel model is that that jump from volumetric efficiency to, to engine torque, which is so important for some of these late model uh, engine management systems, becomes simpler. There's less of a jump. How, how do we get from VE to torque? Yeah, so it's just it's what falls out of airflow. Um, knowing airflow is really the the big the big sort of result of volumetric efficiency based ECU. Um, there there are a lot of things that factor into accurating torque. Uh, excuse me, estimating torque correctly, and that has to do with frictional losses and um, sort of accurate data going into this input. But yeah. um, you can you can basically it's a, an equation away from airflow passing through the motor so mass flow through the motor I should say and, and once you've got that torque then that allows a, a lot of other things to be done around torque uh, requests particularly when we're dealing with maybe some of the dual clutch transmissions or we have with that interaction yeah. between the the transmission control and the ECU yeah yeah GTR is a good example um, the Motec Plug and play for the GTR is uh, is quite good. Um, I don't do really any of those cars, uh, the Huracan or the GTR specifically, but the uh, the package that they've written for that, I know that they've gone through extensive lengths to try to make sure that the torque value, the torque request value being sent to the TCM is is accurate, so that the car doesn't yeah. drive like shit um, yeah. or shift perfectly yeah. or whatever. Yeah. All right. So just. Coming back to M1 build, and and that's sort of one of the key advantages for those who are a little bit more um, sophisticated. Uh, let, let's call it nerdy. Um, yeah. But could, could you again for those who maybe have never heard M1 build, never heard that term? Can, can you give us a, a sort of thirty thousand foot overview of of what M1 build is, what that sort of um, you know ecosphere actually involves? Sure. Yeah. It's it for me. It's the same. It 
it sparked the same sort of love and passion for Motech products that the original V3 um, M800 did. And that it allows you to uh, not complain to Motech about features that they don't have. <laughs> uh, it, it allows it you, it yourself. you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. So it allows you to, to take something like if you I'll make an example here, if the Lambda control for M1 is not my favorite um, of the features in that ECU. And, you know, instead of like writing up some long winded pointless post on social media about how Motec sucks and the M1 Lambda control is terrible, um, I can go fix it. And, yep. you know, if, if I wanted to have a traditional PID loop, I can do that. Uh, and that's the power of that is just so immense. Um, uh, and it's that type of, they've done this magical thing with M1 build that allows relatively novice uh, programmers and engine tuners and or the special combination of both, which I think I sort of fall into a little bit um, it, to make the changes to the ECU that they want to make. And this is this is done in NASCAR. This is done in, in much higher levels of motorsport where you can basically, in, in the case of NASCAR, McLaren or TAG will give you this box that's in ECU and you, you can use their system monitor software, which is their like tuning interface. And you can make the car, make the engine run fine. But a lot of the top teams are have, you know, their own, we'll call it firmware in this case to run the motor as they would like. Um, sure. And so it gives them the sort of uh, ability to do what they want with it. Yeah, exactly. And to, so to circle back to your question, what is build? Uh, build for me uh, and build for everyone is really the ability to go add sensors, add functions, um, add specifically add uh, very powerful can receive and transmit stuff uh, to an ECU. But it doesn't have anything that'll get you into really deep shit. So you yeah. can't do uh, for loops or while loops. So for people that are programming, um, these are these are sort of logic loops that you can get stuck in and crash the computer. Uh, okay. So they've done it such that it's more like a ladder. It's referred to as a ladder logic controller. So it's really just a bunch of if, if else statements and an automatic scheduler. So that you can't you can't. It's really hard. It's possible, <laughs> but it's really hard to program yourself into a really bad situation with build. Um, okay. It does does that stuff very well. So in a nutshell, what we're doing with build is essentially treating the ECU as, as just a, an electronic black box. And that little black box will then do whatever we tell it to via the firmware that we generate and build. And we are seeing those ECUs used in completely non-automotive applications as well for industrial control, et cetera, because again, it's just going to do whatever it's told to via its programming. That's exactly right. And one of the things I don't think the Montech engineers that have willed this product into existence uh, get enough credit for is the, the simplicity and the flexibility, but not over complexity. They're basically walking a bit of a tightrope there, giving enough control without making it so complex that you need a PhD to be able to actually use the, the software. 
For sure, it's not bare metal programming. This is what the the sort of industry term would be called. So you're not having to deal with sort of library linking or any of this memory management or scheduling or interrupts. Uh, that removes some power um, to to M1 build. Uh, for instance, there's there's a particular function that I would like that to be in there that will never be in there um, because they they sort of it occupies this sort of middle level between uh, M1 tune, you know, the user interface would be this high level where you're you're changing numbers and making things sort of uh, affecting the, the inputs into the computer. Build is this middle level where you can change the functions between the high level and the actual chips on the on the ECU. And then the low level is this stuff that only MoTeC has access to, which is the, the sort of base base programming that gives you all this flexibility, but it comes with great risk to crash your computer or get into a bad scenario. So it's it's really a, a, a wonderful middle ground there. It sounds like they've probably got the right balance there, not that I come at this from a, a programmer's perspective, but uh, I, I've, I've had, I've played around with build and I've managed to to, to make my own functions, which for all intents and purposes, um, and if a programmer, maybe someone like yourself, looked at it, you'd probably laugh at my code, but uh, at the end of the day, I kind of got the job done. So, um, it, which, which actually sort of segues nicely into the next question, uh, which, as I mentioned, I've had a little bit of experience with, but when you're talking about programming and writing code, like this is a very different skill set from the, the mainstream engine tuner. Uh, can uh, a mainstream tuner who hasn't got that that sort of uh, college education in in coding adapt and, and and work in the build environment? Yeah, yeah. There's I, I, you don't need any kind of. And to be clear, I mean, just as a total side note, I, there's nothing that says that anybody needs any type of advanced degree to do anything. Um, I think to do specific and, and especially not in build. Build is the language of build is like C, um, but C code, if you're writing it at a microcontroller level, is is much more complex. Even in a, in a in a environment like an Arduino, like a small little microcontroller that you make LEDs turn on and off, um, build is much simpler than that. Um, the syntax takes a little bit of time to get used to, but uh, it's you can do like I listened to your your podcast, your talk with Shane. Um, and what Shane had said is totally correct. If you want to copy and paste, a, you know, there's a, if you want to add a third wastegate or something silly like that, mm. you can copy the wastegate position bank two and make it bank three or, you know, just something like that. Literally copy and paste it. I think it's probably important again for those who are maybe listening to this and have, have no understanding of that MoTeC environment at all as well. Like while yes, you can literally treat it like a clean sheet of paper, almost no one is doing that. And and you're starting from <laughs> almost <laughs> a, an existing project most of the time. Yeah. Uh, so all of the stuff's in there to actually run the engine, control the injectors, the, the ignition, et cetera. And then it's a case of uh, you could do something as simple as, as changing what the axis is for your main efficiency table, or you could then add your own functionality. So it can be as, as, as simple or as complex as you want it to be. And again, just to, to kind of give a little bit from my own sort of experience with this system uh, and coming from a non-coders, non-programmers perspective, it's not rocket science because what you get the ability to do is have a look through the existing code and and see oh I, I can see how they've 
laid this out and how this function works and you know a, a bit of sort of you know research into that and understanding how Motec are doing it then you can apply that same sort of logic to your own functions and you know I mean I, I just started with something simple and you know tested until it worked and yeah it, it, it's a bit of trial and error so yeah I, I think it, it is achievable probably also worth mentioning for those who who maybe want some functions written and, and don't want to go down that rabbit hole of learning uh, there, there are specialist companies out there Motec dealers who do write code for third parties as well correct? Yep. Yep. I am one of those companies. Uh, I, most of my business now is basically just doing private label build development for most of Obsidian's business is, is doing private label um, M1 build development for other dealers, um, not even just end users. Uh, and that's been fun because a lot of people have really great ideas that are really interesting and compelling and, and just don't either have the time or the want to write it and build themselves. Uh, and it's It's been fun to be a part of some of those interesting projects sure. all right i think we've probably done that to, to death and uh before everyone falls asleep thinking about writing code I, I wanted to 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 jump into a slightly different topic which uh is being prominent for your company over the last few years uh back to 2019 which uh is the bbi autosport porsche gt3 uh, twin turbo gt3 uh, that you competed with at Pikes Peak. Well, you're in charge of the uh, calibration configuration. And uh, I, I remember watching the YouTube build of that. It was built in some insane, insanely short time frame, like, like a month before Pikes Peak 2019, uh, which usually doesn't go too well. But uh, in, in this case, it worked out perfectly. Can, can you tell us how you came to be involved with that project? Yeah, for sure. Uh, that was, was a, a sort of a, a confluence of, events that led me into that project. So I, uh, BBI Autosport, for those who don't know, is in Huntington Beach, California, so Southern California. I was living in San Francisco at the time, uh, so that's a couple hours north of there. And uh, I had a very good friend of mine um, who was doing a lot of the engineering work on that car <clears throat> had asked for just basically about a month, a little more than a month before, had just like frantically pleaded for me to join uh, join their join their project to help them sort of get that car to the mountain and uh, honestly we weren't even thinking about a record at the time uh, we just wanted to make it and make it make a clean run up the hill so it was a lot of work um, in a short period of time and uh, it certainly wasn't just me but it was a lot of people coming together to make that make that project happen so that was a sure it's a 991 gt3 cup America uh, that BBI had built a motor for and a twin turbo kit. And then there was a suite of Motec electronics, uh, PDM30, C127, and uh, M150. So you came into this project um, from what I understand, the, the electronics package was already uh, basically installed in the car and, and you had a wiring harness in there. So your job was sort of to come in and, and configure everything and, yeah. and get it up and running and calibrate it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, so everything was blank. Um, the ECU didn't have firmware on it. It was PDM had nothing on it. Dash had nothing on it. So it was just sort of to set it up such that they wanted to reach their goals and make the car run reliably. And it has every sensor you could ever want on it, um, except for individual cylinder lambda. Um, but pretty much everything else you can imagine was on there. Okay. Are you running uh, custom firmware on that particular car? 
Yeah, so that has a development license uh, on the car. So yes, as a result, it's custom firmware that I had written. Um, and I had worked with uh, BBI and uh, also Mitch and John from M Engineering uh, to sort of uh, make a, make a good plan to what's needed to make that car reliable. And I had basically just sat there and worked away at it to make sure that we would have no issues with turbo speed um, at altitude and make sure the car ran well from the base to the mountain, the base to the summit, uh, which is quite an altitude split. Sure. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, we, uh, that, that car was a unique one too, from that perspective, because we never put it on the dyno. Um, that's another really? one that, yeah, never, never touched a dyno before it went to the mountain. Um, so there was no testing whatsoever. Uh, they, 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 it drove through tech and then they went from tech in 2019 to a local track. And the guy would make a lap and I would log in remotely because I, I couldn't go there that year. And we were just basically touching the map up uh, one lap at a time. Uh, and it sort of all eventually came together. Is this where it comes back to because it's VE based, you had that sort of exactly. leg up and, and, and could get to the track? But what are you you then basing? Obviously, you've got feedback on Lambda, so you know where your air fuel ratio is and, and where it's rich or lean. I'm assuming you're probably also relying uh, with a, a, a pretty untuned map like that on closed-loop Lambda to, to correct any errors that are there. Uh, that, that part's easy, but when you've got a, a complex engine with variable cam control, uh, I assume it's still got variable cam control, uh, and you've also got um, ignition timing to deal with. So... Uh, yeah, how are you optimizing those aspects? I don't know if I'm speaking out of turn on the uh, cam control aspect. Oh no, you're you're quite right. Um, so that engine is is more closely based to uh, I think it's a 997 turbo engine. So the chassis is a 991 okay. cup, but the engine is a 997 turbo. So it only has right. single intake cam, so it's not intake and exhaust. Uh, and the intake cam profiles again because of the time frame we. If you've tuned enough cars with a variable inlet cam, you can sort of assume what the cam advance profile is going to need to look like, um, where you advance the intake cam near peak torque and then taper it off as engine speed increases. Um, yep. So that's not terribly difficult. The closed loop stuff needed a little touching. So like the low level closed loop control of the cam was, it was close with some sort of settings I had had from another turbo car I had done um, in years past. And with respect to the ignition timing map, also a valid question. There's no sensible way to validate that uh, remotely. We did, we don't have torque sensors. We don't have any of these like yeah good ways to do that. So this is where a lot of the uh, sort of input and experience with water cooled turbo cars uh, that Mitch and John from M Engineering uh, were able to sort of uh, help point me in the right direction in terms of like what's a safe number for this boost level and then we can bring it down from there and watch knock sensors and so much. Uh, but the objective there again was to be very safe. We were not, that, that car was not on the edge whatsoever. We were just happy to, happy to make it up. In terms of um, power levels, I think it's quoted at the moment this year, uh, I saw some <laughs> numbers bandied around around the, the 1100 horsepower mark, which is, uh, is obviously, um, not messing around there uh and in terms of pikes peak as well you've already mentioned turbo speed so the boost control particularly at pikes peak is quite critical uh mm -hmm. 
I want to sort of get a sense of like, what are you doing there? You talked about some some custom firmware for yeah. safety strategies. What, what were you running on this? And sort of give us a, a bit of an overview of the of the custom stuff that you're doing in there to to get these results. Yeah. So one of the there's a number of little custom things that aren't particularly interesting. Um, one of which is uh, CAN integration for the Megaline stuff that's stock in that car. So Megaline is a company that makes pneumatic gear shift electronics. Um, and uh, it's nice to use their products because their valve bodies, uh, CAN outputs, the compressor has CAN outputs. So we can log all of that data to make sure the compressor is not overrunning. So there were safeties in there for that. You'd spot if there's a leak, basically, because there's a percentage ratio of how often the compressor runs versus not running. And if the runtime is higher than the not runtime, you'll get this sort of creep scenario where the pump can overheat and then it would shut off. So it's an easy way to detect leaks. So that's one thing. Um, with respect to turbo speed, uh, we I, I implemented a, a turbo speed control, boost control. So it's basically targeting turbo speed, not manifold pressure. Um, because the turbos we were using were G3900 G3, Garrett's. Um, and we basically just wanted to set it up such that at the base of the mountain around 9,000 feet, we would be able to uh, target maximum, you know, just basically at the end, if you know what a compressor map, you know, the, the, the top, <laughs> the top, the top right of the compressor map, we were basically just trying to keep it there, uh, from the base to the top. And as a result, that winds up, you're pulling boost out of it, you know, as a, as a, as a result, as it goes up so that it don't overspeed. Um, and we were able to keep the turbo speed the same at the bottom as it was at the top. And that was really the main objective. So we don't ship parts out of the side of it or anything. Um, yeah. Or, yeah. I think that that's easy to overlook is, you know, when you've got massive changes in, in uh, barometric gear pressure at the likes of Pikes Peak, the, you know, people look at a turbocharger and will, uh, it's obviously the boost pressure is the important part, but it's really as far as the compressor is concerned, it's the pressure ratio, which is the ratio between the, the inlet pressure, typically somewhere pretty close mm -hmm. to barometric, and the compressor outlet. And of course, as the inlet pressure drops, the barometric air pressure drops as we go up the mountain, if we're maintaining the same manifold pressure, that pressure ratio is constantly climbing. And in order to achieve that, if we're looking at the turbo speed, that is also constantly climbing. And then we get to a point where we overspeed the turbo and... Uh, yeah often they fall apart. So obviously not the yeah. way to get a result. So again, the, the, we, we were, if you want to think of it, we were losing power as we were going up. So we're not targeting constant power. We're targeting constant speed, uh, turbo speed. Of that. Yeah. Um, and uh, my, it, it's, it's, a, it's a funny balance at Pikes Peak specifically because you, there are such low speed turns that you can't, I, I wanted to put much larger turbos on it because it's, it's less fun to, pull power out of it as it goes up and more fun to keep it the same. <laughs> uh, but yeah. that was not, not in the cards uh, for this. And even with anti-lag at that and those turbos, which are not particularly large for the displacement of the engine, um, it was still a little laggy, you know, as it, at that really low RPM. So uh, there's about, we didn't have bypass valves in the exhaust. So yeah. I noticed that with the the car that um, that I tuned that we took to Pikes Peak and, and here in Queenstown, are essentially a bit over sea level. Uh, the thing was super responsive. You know, we're we're all in by <laughs> yeah. three three and a half thousand RPM, and we get to Pikes Peak on the first day of testing, and we've got a thousand RPM more lag before the things are at, at full boost. And you know, it, it really sort of 
opens your eyes to to the effects of altitude that you know, we, we just don't see those sort of altitude changes here in New Zealand so uh, I, I didn't I didn't have an understanding of what I was actually going to be facing so yeah choosing the turbo size so that you're not going to be overspeeding the turbo at 14,000 feet but still getting response particularly through that middle section the the uh, switchbacks is, is pretty tricky yeah, yeah. you just mentioned anti, anti-lag as well so you you were relying on an anti-lag strategy mm-hmm. so we used anti-lag also um, but there's a we didn't have what would be referred to as air bypass valves in the exhaust so we were using uh, keeping the throttle open uh, and they're, they're, the, the main downside with that is the lack of engine braking. Um, and so the driver we had in the car was a lovely French guy, um, and he's a rally driver. So he's, he's used to anti-lag, and he knows what comes with that. But at the same time, he we, we had trouble making him very comfortable in the car, so I never went particularly aggressive with it. But it did help a little bit. He said it was a small a small assistance, but... They basically didn't go nuts. So if you jacking the throttle open, if you so again, I guess to just break that down for maybe people who aren't sort of understanding what that what that all means, you know, there's two ways of getting the anti lag, which is essentially combustion in the exhaust manifold or exhaust system that then in turn provides energy to spool the turbochargers. But the two ways of getting that air through the engine, one of them, as you mentioned, crack the throttle plate. But then essentially we've got fuel and air being combusted in the engine still to some point. So it, it tends to create a, a bit of push. Uh, the car doesn't tend to want to slow down when you get on the brake. And the other way of doing that is, uh, I, I call it fresh air anti-lag, where yeah. you're actually introducing air pre-throttle uh, straight into the exhaust manifold. So kind of you can go a lot more aggressive with the anti-lag strategy uh, without those those downsides in drivability. That's exactly right. Yeah, and we just... Uh, we, we will do that again if we use that car next year, um, but we didn't have the hardware uh, to do a, a fresh air anti-lag system, so we just use the throttle instead. What what sort of things are you monitoring with that anti-lag strategy? Because it can create a, a huge uh, amount of well, can cause damage to turbochargers, exhaust valves. Mm-hmm. It's pretty it's pretty nasty on things, particularly for <laughs> you know the the Pikes Peak run up the hill. Uh, it, it's quite a long it's quite a long hill climb so yeah are you using any sort of strategies to sort of monitor and 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 control that for safety yeah so we have vgts in every runner uh so we have exhaust gas temp in each runner and um there are certainly safeties that are present in the stock gp packages from motec and m1 that allow you to turn it off if stuff gets really heavy um but just i didn't do much to the anti-lag as it comes from motec uh, because it's fairly comprehensive and fine in my mind um so you basically you're turning it off if it gets too hot it's a short answer yeah okay uh now we we we've done another podcast previously with shane uh tecklenburg who we we went deep into uh changes in tuning for altitude so i'm, I'm not going to mm-hmm. kind of go over that same ground again uh what i'm interested to know once you've got that calibration done uh at Colorado on a on a racetrack, and mm-hmm. then the car's gone up the mountain. Uh, what were you kind of looking for? You know, had you made some some uh, assumptions on what was going to happen as the barometric pressure changes, or are you relying on closed loop fuel control there to sort of get you out of a jam if things aren't quite where where you expected them to be? Yeah, so uh, I have modified some of the Motec firmware to take into account barometric pressure. Um, and to use that and airbox pressure specifically um, 
to use that as a bear compensation, really similar to what Jane was doing. Um, and I, I don't rely on the MoTeC Lambda control as much because I don't, uh, I should say, I don't rely on it as it sits in the stock GP packages. Um, it's subject to some uh, deficiencies in my mind. Uh, so the sort of max min uh, authority I give closed loop Lambda over the ECU, even with my code that's a, a, that's a traditional PID, uh, is not more than 10%. Um, because it doesn't, if you need more than that, then something is wrong with your math. Yeah, I, and I think it's it, it, a lot of tuners these days are, are, are trying to use things like closed loop fuel control to circumvent doing their job properly in the first place. And I mean, it's definitely not there as a replacement for tuning the VE table properly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I always sort of say, I, I like to see those closed loop trims no more than maybe plus or minus, maybe two to two to three percent you know you've got something pretty well on point if it's there maybe as much as plus or minus five percent but generally mm -hmm. if i'm seeing those trims consistently outside of that range you know i'm going to go back and address that in the ve table i'm not i'm not relying on that closed loop system yeah exactly i mean one of the one of the screens i have up in i2 for analysis for that car specifically is just a scatter plot of bank one bank two fuel trim plotted uh over engine speed with transients removed and that's a great way to tell really quickly if you've got some kind of big problem. Yeah, I think the scatter plot's a nice way of, of being able to analyze a huge amount of data because when you're looking at like a full run up Pikes Peak or even several laps of data around a racetrack, it, it can be very difficult when you're just looking at a time graph of that to, to spot a trend. Yeah. Well, obviously we, we can't spot a trend. So yeah, X, Y, <laughs> uh, scatter plot, I should say, is uh, a nice yeah. way of, uh, of, of getting gathering all of that data together. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Um, yeah, I try to make scatter plots of everything if I, if I can help it. Time series data is somewhat useful, but uh, in most cases, if you're trying to do a quick analysis, it should be able to, you should be able to look at it and be like, okay, this is good or this is bad. Um, yeah, yeah. All right, uh, we'll move on. Um, for those who are wondering, the car uh, did go very well up Pikes Peak in its debut yeah. year and, and set a new record and won its class. Uh, what was the time up the hill? Uh, 927, I think, is what it was in 2019, and uh, this year in 2021, we also won the car. Thankfully, we went in the down the dyno before this event, so at least we were able to <laughs> sort that out. Um, but in this year, we won uh, won our class as well, and we're fifth overall. Um, but we didn't run all the way up the mountain due to weather, so it's only two of the yeah, three. It makes it a bit tougher. Uh, out of interest. How much more power was there when you actually did get an opportunity to go on the dyno? Yeah, so we compared I mean, to we, your road tune. Yeah, so we made uh, I think estimated because we never put it on the dyno. Um, previously, we were making around eight fifty or nine hundred at the tire, and this year we were making eleven hundred at the tire, and that was that's tapped okay. out though. There's no more no more boost to be had, or I should say, no more turbo speed to be had. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't think too many people would complain with 1,100 horsepower in, in that chassis. It's probably oh, drivers will always find a way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on. So another uh, aspect that I mean, this is starting to get a, a little down in the weeds, but I know there's a bit, there'll be a few people who are interested in in this. It's a, a couple of products that you've you've actually developed and and produced yourself, and I've sort of. Uh, watched some of your posts on Instagram over the the last little while about these and, and 
watch with interest. So your INS and IMU, and we've probably straight away lost a lot of people. So can you give <laughs> us uh, an understanding of what those two uh, two bunches of letters actually mean? Sure. Well, those of you who are still here, thank you. Um, yeah, the, the INS is uh, is an inertial navigation system. That's what it's referred to. That's what the acronym means. And the IMU is an inertial measurement unit. Uh, and the two differentiating factors of those is that the INS is a GPS plus IMU sensor that has onboard sensor fusion. So this takes the advantages of a GPS sensor, or excuse me, a GPS receiver, and the advantages of an IMU and couples them together to make this sort of like super sensor output. And the IMU, uh, maybe we can talk about this more at length at some point, but the product that I'm calling the IMU is, there are other products on the market called an IMU that uh, traditionally that means there is an accel a three, three axis accelerometer and a three axis gyroscope yep. uh, pr pr producing raw data. So for instance, the race grade IMU is an example of that where it was just three axis of acceleration, three axis of angular velocity. Um, that's fine. Uh, what my sensor is, the IMU has, uh, my IMU, <laughs> I should say, has a three degree, uh, three axis accelerometer, three axis gyroscope, three axis magnetometer, and a barometric pressure sensor and a temperature sensor. And it takes all of this information and fuses it together to provide, in addition to all of those things, um, roll pitch and yaw at high rate, high uh, excuse me, at high update frequency. And it okay. will provide velocity and position given a start signal. So this is okay. targeted at drag racing or sprint applications specifically. All right, so roll pitch in your data. I mean, obviously the three axis G sensor is, is nothing new and, mm -hmm. and we've had those for a long time. So it's all well and good. People looking to maybe purchase an, an IMU, that's great. What is the value of that data in roll pitch in your, and how can we actually utilize that to make the car work better, go faster, turn the chassis, turn the driver, whatever we're trying to do? Yeah, so in both of these sensors, the INS and the IMU, um, the roll pitch and yaw data is very valuable. Um, a simple example is for a drag racing application where a car is uh, pitching up under a power wheelie as it leaves the line. Um, if you have high enough rate pitch information, uh, you can build a control loop to, as the car comes up, you can soften the engine or reduce torque and have it not come down and smash the oil pan um, or just general as a safety item. Uh, yaw rate or yaw specifically is another great safety feature to you can put it into a control loop to activate a safety if yaw rate exceeds some value or if yaw deviates by some degree from what is what is straight down the track, for lack of a better word, and throw the chute or something. So for, yeah, throw the chute out. Yeah, okay. Now, uh, obviously, uh, wheelies on a, on a road course, pr probably not too relevant, but the yaw data there, can, can we learn from that around the chassis balance in terms of understeer and oversteer? Yeah, so... Uh, a, a more interesting application maybe from that is with the INS, you get velocities in the body frame, which is okay. quite simply put, um, 
if you imagine a an IMU or an INS placed in a vehicle such that the x-axis is pointed forward, the y-axis is pointed left, and z-axis is pointed up, that mm -hmm. coordinate frame describes the, the vehicle. And so if you're driving straight, we'll say at 10 meters per second, you're driving straight, you have a velocity of in the x-axis of 10 meters per second and zero in the y-axis and zero in the z-axis. So if you're doing, you know, if you are about to run into a wall, maybe you have only lateral velocity, which should be really scary because you can't do anything about that, right? So you would have a velocity, x, x velocity of zero meters per second and then a velocity of 10 meters per second in the y. So that's the vehicle sliding into a wall exactly sideways. Yep. So the ratio yeah. of y velocity to the x velocity is slip angle. Um, and the output of that is very useful for describing sort of driving dynamics and behavior. So that INS sensor has been benchmarked against um, very, very expensive optical sensors and much higher end GPS IMU systems and has done very well uh, for its price and size. Uh, I think that's probably a, a key aspect which is definitely getting well beyond um, my my level of understanding but you know just reading some of your posts that these these products that we see on the market they're not all created equal and and the accuracy and repeatability of the signals that we're receiving from them differ vastly depending on the hardware which obviously comes down to the cost and then also from what I can understand from your posts again the filtering that you're applying and, and how smart that is. Yeah, that's exactly right. So uh, all the products that are commonplace in the motorsport world at the sort of sub WRC F1 level are basically just three axis accelerometers and three axis gyroscopes. And that's it. Yeah. So there's no there's no math that's done on board to provide you these sort of derivatives of those those sensors. Um, so as an example, uh, I call my product an IMU, but perhaps I'm not much of a business or marketing person. <laughs> so maybe I should have called it something else, but it provides those, all of that data that normal IMUs in the motorsport market provide, plus uh, acceleration bias um, filtering, uh, excuse me, acceleration bias mitigation, um, orientation estimates, which is this roll pitch yaw that we spoke about, and then also this uh, sort of velocity estimation too, which is um, sure. very useful, I think, for a, a lot of people. And so I, I sort of identified that there was a hole in the market there. And I was fortunate enough at my last job to play with a lot of these, these sensors that are um, sort of unattainable to civilians. So um, you get these like yeah. really fancy, fancy robotic sensors. And I just thought they were cool. I guess at the baseline, it just I think it's I think it's awesome, and I'm like really really sort of interested and passionate about filtering and, and inertial sensing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, maybe that's obvious. <laughs> I think it's probably worth saying that, that these these products that you've specifically made, as you say, to fill a hole in the market, these probably aren't a requirement for those of us maybe at the club level, and and I'm guessing you'll focus these more on that sort of higher level. Uh, semi-professional to professional motorsport, as you say, uh, somewhere below the F1 and WRC level. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I, I honestly, these 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 sensors started out as just something I thought would be cool because I wanted one. Um, 
and it it turned out that I didn't think the price like these these sort of cost me a lot to make, um, and I'm not trying to make a pity party for myself because they're expensive, but um, they like I, I don't I don't want everyone to buy one of these. I I, I think that most people can get away with a basic IMU in this case, um, uh, the, like the commonplace ones. Um, but the the people that responded really positively to these sensors are folks that are used to spending, you know, between I don't know, ten to twenty thousand dollars on a GPS system. So it's it's definitely a different market than yeah. normal people. So these are folks like, um, yeah. Tesla and Ford have have bought them. Ford Performance, uh, RTR yeah. Motorsports have bought one. You know, it's just like these are not your your run of the mill uh, tuner shops that are are buying these things. These are guys that are really looking for data at a very very high rate uh, and very high accuracy. So you haven't had to put these on the shelf with your um unsold uh, sim, sim kits. <laughs> no, thankfully they're doing better than the, the the poor simulators that I have in a trash can back there somewhere. Good, good. Obviously you you've learned as as times progressed. All right, uh, question we like to ask: If you could look back on your career up to this point, and it's been a pretty winding journey from what we've learned so far today uh maybe not mainstream from the people we normally talk to but interesting nonetheless is there any any advice you'd give to a younger version of yourself that uh may have helped you avoid some of the pitfalls or speed up your trajectory huh yeah uh i think the thing that i would tell my younger self is to just do it don't don't worry about um, trying to overthink things. I think a lot of the, a lot of the struggles I had early on were just based on trying to sort of painfully plan about how I would go from buying an M800 that I couldn't afford at the time and, you know, become a MoTeC dealer. And then I was going to do this many cars per month and it was just going to be great. And I had, you know, I was going to build a shop and I had this whole list of things out that I was going to buy. And really it, it just got down to this like kind of analysis paralysis of, of just, uh, <laughs> uh, nothing yeah, happened. I, and then I, I a hundred percent agree. Yeah. It just, so many, so many people do get stuck in their analysis paralysis, sort of no man's land. And I mean, obviously a plan and a general goal or direction is, is, is important, but, um, at some point you do also have to just, commit and start working towards it and what I've always seen as well is you, know, you can have the best laid plans and then you take that first step and everything changes and it's about being flexible and being able to adapt to to what you find as you start down that journey I think yeah totally agree um, and just to not worry about I mean this is this sounds insensitive to say being in a in a place where I am now but just not don't worry about money. Money doesn't matter. Like, don't, don't worry about charging everything for charging people. Like you have to charge people to make money. I understand that as a business, but it, it, sometimes it's just, you just need to do it. And, uh, you'll, you'll learn more things. You'll learn more that you don't know that you don't know, <laughs> you know, by doing it than just sort of, uh, yeah. planning for, and then worrying about money and, and all this stuff. Like you gotta, you gotta do what's right for, you and your family, but at the same time, it's stuff that stuff always doesn't have to make like perfect financial sense. 
No, I 100% agree. I, I, and I think a lot of us in the automotive world probably got into it because of passion over money. And certainly if um, becoming very wealthy was your main driving goal, there's, there's probably alternative career paths that might make a, a little bit more sense. But uh, at, at the end of the day, we all have our different motivations for doing this. But I've always believed that if you're passionate about what you're doing, you're going to at least enjoy it. That's really important because you spend so much of your life working. And then if you're good at what you do and you do quality work and you keep your customer base happy, uh, then the money in one shape or form will will come as a result of that. Yep. Yep. Totally agree. Yeah. The, I, the, the, the podcast you did with Scott was, was the ending of that was just perfect. Scott's such a cool dude and to hear him sort of lay it out like that was right on. It was really cool. Hi, uh, Scott, Scott Kuna from, from Emtron. Yeah, well, yeah. Just for those who haven't maybe listened to that, uh, that episode. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he maybe went a little, a little further than the most with the sort of, uh, jump out of the airplane and build the parachute on the way down. But mm-hmm. I mean, again, ex- exactly what I was saying, it, it's yeah. it's worked out for him. He's got a very viable product yeah. and, and a thriving business as a result. 100% agree. Right. If uh, people want to follow you and find out a little bit more about what you're up to, uh, how can they how can they do that? Where should they go? Yeah, the best, uh, the best course of action, I think, for that, if you're interested, is uh, I try to keep my Instagram happening, um, at least occasionally when I do stuff that I think is interesting. Um, that's one word, uh, Lambda of one, um, uh, on Instagram. And then my Facebook page is more or less the same. It's just, uh, facebook.com city and motorsport. Um, so that's perfect. Yeah. Yep. And I can attest to, for those who are maybe a little bit more technically inclined, like myself, uh, following Sander will definitely open your eyes. <laughs> All right, um, Sander, as an avid mountain biker that you are, hopefully once this COVID thing blows over, uh, we can see you uh, down here in Queenstown and uh, head out on some of the trails around here. Oh, I'd I'm love sure, that. Uh, I'm sure you'd love it here. I would love that for sure. It's definitely on my bucket list. Perfect. All right, thanks heaps for your time, Sander, and look forward to chatting again later. Okay, dude. Talk to you later. All right, that concludes our interview. And before we sign off, I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of High Performance Academy before, we are an online training school and we specialize in teaching a range of performance automotive topics, everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring, car suspension and wheel alignment, uh, data analysis and race driver education. Now remember, you've got that coupon code. You can use podcast75 at the checkout to get $75 off the purchase of your first course. You'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses. Important to mention that when you purchase a course from us, that course is yours for life as well. It never expires. You can rewatch the course as many times as you like, whenever you like. The purchase of a course will also give you three months of access to our gold membership. That gives you access to our private members only forum, which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars, which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm. We dive into that topic for about an hour. If you can watch live, you can ask questions and get answers in real time. 
If the time zones don't work for you, that's fine too. You're going to get access as a gold member to our previous webinar archive. We've got close to 300 hours of existing content in that archive. It is an absolute gold mine. So remember that coupon code PODCAST75. Check out our course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses.